0: Welcome to the Nonprofit Experience. I'm Sandy Sear, Managing Editor for the Philanthropy Journal. Creating systems change is complex. There is no one blanket solution to solving the social issues of our time. This week, Peter Buffett, co-president of the Novo Foundation, and Dolores Bailey, Executive Director of Empowerment Incorporated, start to dig deep into the historical, psychological, and systemic challenges to creating a community where civil rights are based on actual human dignity and purpose.
1: I'm Peter Buffett. I am co-chair and co-president of the Novo Foundation. The mission and vision of the foundation is um, to help foster a transformation from uh, domination and exploitation to partnership and collaboration, uh, seeing girls and women as the primary agents of change. And again, the, the importance being help Foster that, so create conditions for that, not to say we have an answer and here's how you do it, but to do a lot of listening and see if we can uh, help it along.
2: I'm Dolores Bailey, I'm Executive Director of Empowerment Incorporated. We're a nonprofit located in Chapel Hill that serves the Orange County area. Our, our mission is to um, empower people and communities to discover their destiny through affordable housing, economic development, and community organizing. Um, When people think of Orange County, they usually think of Chapel Hill, which is the University of North Carolina, and the Mm -hmm. board-winning Tar Heels. Um, There's a huge divide between the have and the have-nots, and so Empowerment spends a lot of time working on the whole community, trying to bring them together around their differences, and then help people use their voice
1: we have this mythology around pull yourself up by your bootstraps and you know if you can't make it, it must be your fault. And that is so not true. And so to recognize that that is the mythology of America but it's it's not actually true person to person because there are systems and structures in place mm-hmm. that have, have kept people uh, in their place, for lack of a better phrase, um, for far too long. And if we don't look at those things, we aren't going to get to the root of a lot of these
2: issues. I agree. And the other side of that, too, is those people who are living on that other side who are trying and can't make (sighs) it, but the Mm -hmm. real struggle that they go through. Um, So part of what we do in Orange County in our communities is, specifically, uh, Empowerment has been working with folk who live in mobile home parks Mm -hmm. most recently. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's almost a never-ending struggle to try to overcome. Um, And interestingly enough, the folk that we work with want everything that you and I want. Right. They want their families to be okay, they exactly. want education, they want yep. a good place to live. Yep. And and those barriers continue to exist. And though we talk about it for a long time,
1: mm-hmm. it seems,
2: mm-hmm. the needle seems not to move.
1: Right, because it's not as if anyone doesn't already have the power, it's the, yes. the structures that keep the empowerment from happening. Yes. And uh, I am a, a big fan of history, and I'll probably refer to it Way too <laughs> often, <laughs> but it is what what it, it's the architecture of of what we're inside of. We have a a culture. Uh, it's it's so baked in, and it, it is so turned into um, abstraction. Right. So, uh, two hundred years ago, we were all farming, all of us, pretty much, and 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 life and liberty. Uh, And I always get hung up on the pursuit of happiness because it's about pursuit. It's like they baked it right into that first document that you can just pursue and pursue and pursue and it doesn't mean you're gonna get there. And that I think is is a huge issue. And so when we were all farming, we pretty much knew what our neighbors did. Uh, We knew that we were all on a path of some kind of an independence because you had a couple chickens and you had a little bit of land or maybe you were an apprentice but the last thing you were doing is working for somebody else for a wage. I mean that was, wage labor wasn't even in the picture until after the Civil War and the Industrial Revolution and uh, millions of enslaved peoples, uh, people being free and what did the first thing the enslaved people want? Education, they built schools, they built- uh, Churches. Churches, they 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 had uh, such a, a hunger uh, for that freedom that they heard so much about, and they they pursued it and they got it. And then you know you look at Reconstruction and the first couple years were were terrible. Then the next couple years were pretty darn good. Things started to change. And then and the and next few years were then terrible. The next few years they changed right back. And <laughs> after the Civil War. Uh, the, the the real problem, I think, was that the Industrial Revolution just took off, and so it it literally poured gasoline on the fire of what otherwise might have been the opening for a different kind of America. But instead, it went straight to wage labor and, and a number of other things. Uh, and that's where, what I was getting at before, the abstraction came in. So the next... 50 years after the Civil War really put everything we're feeling the effects of solidly in place. It was 100 years between Civil War and Civil Rights, Mm -hmm. and we're not, it's gonna be 100 years more (laughs) potentially before we actually get to a place where it's actually civil rights based on human dignity and and purpose.
2: If I go back a little bit, the same path that you traced on the non-white side, Mm-hmm. it's a little different than just the economics. So economics mm-hmm. was a very important piece of it. I, I, what I feel, one of the main problems is just what was done to the mindset, to the psyche of those folk who were non-white African Americans. Right. And right. there's a piece of that that has never gone away. The right. whole slavery issue and right. trying to rectify with that. Right. The only, Like you said, 100 years between Reconstruction and the Civil War and all of the things that happened. Yep. And there were a few people that, grew out of that and and did wonderful things. But when I look at 2019 and then I go right back historically just like you just traced it, Mm -hmm. there is an absolute place where we never got over the wall. We never, in our heads and our hearts. And so then when I look at African-Americans living in poverty, then right. I understand that there's some of that that came from way back in the slavery piece. So when yeah. we talk about trying to fix this thing, we've got to look at that point, understand right. it, right. And, and, and address it, and right. go, okay, here's what happened back then. But if you're living without, right. if you're living from day to right. day in your car, right. if you're the working poor, right. you don't have time to try to go all the no, way you're back you're and not exist <laughs> it. But then it's up right. to us. Right. To put some some parameters around yeah. that, and that's yeah. what I think yeah. we miss, Peter. I think we, yeah. we we cannot solve it all. But as we're out telling people about this problem, we have to look at what is the history of it. How do we fix the history, right. not change it? Right, right, right. It? right.
1: Yeah, because the history is it, and you're right. It is not an economic problem. It's a mm-hmm. consciousness problem. Not just.
0: Problem. Yeah, it's yeah.
1: It, the consciousness allows for all the other things to happen, the economic. The social, the cultural, all these other things come from how we think about ourselves and how we think about ourselves as human beings, whether it's the internet and different ways to be able to communicate like this podcast, people are starting to speak up and out more about how we did get into this.
2: Well, you know, Peter, if you, if you trace it back just recently, and I will always maintain that Obama winning the presidency opened up a can of worms yes. that we were not ready for. Right. And, yeah. and so yeah. we've always been, we played yeah. nice about it, Right. but we've not said anything. And so his presidency opened it up. When Trump came into presidency, then he's just given voice mm-hmm. to it. Yeah. It's been right. there. It's been there all So own. the question okay. is, are we going to fix it? Are we right. going to actually put some medicine to what's wrong with us? Because right. we're an open wound right now. Right, absolutely. We cannot agree on much of anything. Right. But, and the whole distrust that we went through in the 60s. Right through the Civil War, when, when we were learning to trust each other and work mm-hmm. with each other, mm-hmm. all of that mistrust has come back again. Mm-hmm. And I fear that if we don't figure out a way right, to address it honestly right. and actually apply some self to it, right. we are going to stay like this for a long right. time.
1: I am hopeful that actually our president now, um, Trump, uh, has been the best organizer we've ever seen. And mm-hmm. and I have seen organizations come together in ways they never had before, looking across the table saying, oh, wait, our stories aren't that different. Your issue is my issue. Right. you know. And right. so those things are happening. I think he's actually been a tremendous catalyst, but I'm not quite sure what we're going to have to go through to get to the other side.
2: I scenes. think we, one of the <laughs> things we've got to do is go back to where we were, uh, again, back to the civil rights era when we put down color and gender and work together and a little right. bit of that is happening now but he is a great organizer even mm-hmm. better than Obama was yes yeah. oh yeah and so it yeah. requires us to step up and yeah. I'll I'll speak yeah. to just a little bit of the difficulties I have as, as an african-american female mm-hmm. and just trying to not even break the ceiling but get at the table yeah. where my voice will be heard right. that is difficult to do right. in these troubling times because right. what people have done is hunkered down around right. their beliefs right even the religious rights Mm -hmm. are defending things that don't even make sense when you apply them to the Bible they don't make sense however they are so determined that Trump be right that that attitude if you want to say preservation of the white male is is right at any expense then this side has got to come together, right. and we haven't right. figured that out yet. Right. We've talked about
1: it, right. Right.
2: but we've not figured out how to work really well with each other. Yeah.
1: Well, and I think a lot, it lives in a few places. One, we, we live in this binary world, you know, when George Bush said you're either with us or against us. It's like, no, it, you know what, uh-huh. it's, it's a little more complicated than that, and people don't like uh, ambiguity, Or complexity, they just want the answer, and they want to see who they can point their finger at, and that is somehow embedded. And this is what I'm held bent on figuring out: is where did this come from? My feeling, to some extent, this is a, a crazy thought that I'll throw out there into this podcast that. If you look at colonization from 1500, let's say, when mm-hmm. navigation started to happen and commerce and all these... And for some reason, it was all mostly the, the, the European countries that yeah. just decided they were going to go everywhere and take everything. And so the colonies happened, but then you look at a, a graphic of how they spread, but then how they retracted, right? right. So in the 50s, 60s, 70s, The the land started to go back to the people that were there. Now, they were deeply traumatized and affected by that, which is why we see issues all over the world. But the United States is the only surviving colony. It's the only colony that actually stuck and, and got its independence and said, no, we're a country, we're not a colony. So I think we have a real issue of legitimacy. I think that's why we have the largest army by far in the world, and I think it's why we have a bully as a president, and we've always been a bully in the world in terms of saying we're going to tell you what's right and how to do it, because we actually are the least legitimate landmass in
2: and, and I in the agree world. with you, and I think part of that is our belief. Bleak- Peace comes from fear.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And when you
2: talk about the fifteen hundreds and how the Native Americans were here, let's talk about how we treat Native Americans mm-hmm. now, like not they're to mention, not in even the citizens. In the,
1: all the way along, it's
2: it's right. not right. So so, right. Uh, come back around then, Peter. To how are we going to fix this? Right. It cannot always stay this way. When you when right. you go back to history right. and the, right. the powers that be start one way and it always changes. Right. right. And right. so America might be great now, right. but until we work together, we're right. not going to stay great.
1: So my, uh, my prediction is that we will see at some point in the distant, not too distant, soon, sometime, is what I call networked bioregions. And what I mean by networked bioregion is that if you look at New England, you look at the South, you look at the Pacific Northwest, you look these places have natural resources that have always been there, that people have always lived by. They've always traded. The Mississippi River's been trading for thousands mm-hmm, and thousands mm-hmm. of years. And that that it doesn't mean we throw away all of technology. I love the fact that my dentist lives in 2019 and not 1910. <laughs> and so it's not saying, oh, we just go back to the past and throw it away. No, it's taking everything we've learned, recognizing that People live in place uh, based on their relationship to that place and, and what's there. And, and that community, small community, is the natural state of things. Big cities aren't natural. You know They can't live for very long if they don't have resources coming in from the outside.
2: I agree with you. Let me, let me put yeah. a pin in that for a minute to talk about what gentrification is doing to small neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. And Peter, as they gentrify, you're losing that one person working with each other, community, it's you're losing it. it. Yeah, And you can use Durham, North Carolina as a perfect example. Mm-hmm. This city used to be run by blacks. You know, Black mm-hmm. Wall Street was here right. in Durham, North Carolina. Right. You can't right. find that now. Right. North Carolina Mutual Insurance Company, which yep. started yep. all of that. Yep. Uh, Mechanics and Farmers Bank, this was the mecca for black people to live, and you can't see it now. So my question is this, is our future going to be more gentrification? Because as our Traditionally, African-American neighborhoods fall into disrepair, and the money comes in and the green comes in and fixes right. it up and makes it what Damn. downtown Durham is. Right. And, and where are we finding community? Right. Where's right. community now? Right. That's what I struggle with. Right. And I go back to those folk living at poverty and living in public housing are right. probably the closest thing that we have to community right now. Yeah, absolutely. But we're not in there organizing. Right. right. Because right now we got to take care of those people who are middle class, African-American middle class that we are losing or have lost, we've got to try to massage that so it continues to grow so that it can reach back. And when I think about what can happen, I think about Detroit, Peter. How Mm. in the world could the Motown City, where all the cars, how could that have gone into disrepair like it did? How could we have let that happen? But we are. And I fear more talents are going to happen like that before we get this structure together that you're yeah. talking about.
1: No, I think you're right, and I think the structure will come from those very places because the, the beauty of my uh, little spot in the bleachers here is that I get to go to Detroit, I get to go to Baltimore, I get to hear about work in Jackson, and we support all those places in different ways. And what I've seen in Detroit is that people are saying, no one's coming to save us. Let's figure it out and let's love our neighbor and let's get a community garden and let's get. They've got this equitable internet initiative where they just, you know, they're out there building the future. After how many years? After how many years? After how many hurting people? After how many burned out houses? After how much water being turned off? After, I mean, it is egregious how we treat our fellow person. And yet, the resiliency. I actually don't like the word resilience because I don't think we should have (laughs) so much, Uh, but we do. And what I believe, what I have to believe, is that in places like Detroit, in places like Durham, when people come together in those church basements, wherever they are at the block party, that they start to feel what we felt 100,000 years ago when we were in community, when we were connected, when we were singing and dancing and growing and you know, maybe dying a little younger, mm-hmm. but we died alive. Yeah. We didn't die alone, and we
2: died active.
1: Yeah, yeah, and so I think a lot of people again they say, "Well, but we we live longer," and we do. It's like I want people with purpose. I want people to live because they feel alive, and so everything you're talking about we know, you know better than I do, is absolutely true. But I have to believe from what I've seen is that on the other side of it is community and neighborhoods and people saying, we grow the food, we talk to each other, we celebrate together, we mourn together, and it's done in small groups. The the myth is that bigger is better and that progress is linear And that, you know, all these things that actually aren't true. You know, I I know a guy very well, (laughs) happens to be my father, who uh, has, I don't even know how much money he has now. He has crazy amounts of money. He's committed to giving it all away, except for a very small amount. He lives very simply in the house I grew up in. You know, he eats hamburgers for dinner. He's got the same car he's had for however long. And I know from my own behavior, too, you don't need tens of millions hundreds of millions billions of dollars it's celebrity you know it's it's pure celebrity status and some sad hole you must have that you need to fill up so part of my job is to get out there and say you got to move this money I mean it at novo Foundation uh, we say putting money out of its misery <laughs> but that's part of it I mean money's not going to solve it. But moving it into places that need it so that they can build lives that are meaningful and connected and can get the child care and the transportation and the rent paid, and those things have to
2: happen. And, and so I'll answer that. The one thing you just said was about growing your own food. And when our parents were growing up, that's what they did. I yeah. lived on a, on a partial farm. Yeah. Even but, kitchen gardens. Yeah. Yeah. But young people don't want to do that now. Right. African-American right. children don't want to do right. that. Right. and I do not I am African American do not speak for all African Americans right, but right, right. the sect that I am the the piece that I'm working in those young people don't want to go back to right. community gardens right um, there's a stigma attached to that right
1: yes however I, yeah.
2: I, however I, yep. I get the fact that it's a wonderful thing to do and it absolutely brings community together right. But that's not what's doing it for young people any, for our right. next generation right. of young people yeah. who are into the internet and who right. are learning from that. I wonder, how are they going to grow this community behind them, right. Peter? Right. I hear what you're saying about yeah. a, a opening up our hearts, Then certainly some of us can, but I mm-hmm. trouble when I work with them daily, right. and I'm just trying to encourage them to stay in school right. and stay in school to find a purpose. Yeah. And so the reality is... How are we gonna yep. pull them back into right. this? How are we gonna make them understand yep. that they are the stewards of what's coming right. up next?
1: It won't be the next generation, or maybe the one after them. It's gonna take three, four, five generations, I think, before the outcome of what we're, we're going into has um, shown itself. Uh, there's not an app for, for the solution we're looking <laughs> for. Uh, and it's not going to be, of course, the same for everybody, but it is going to be a painful process to get through the level of, uh, you know, we live in a world of, of transactions, not relationships. I mean, it is right. so transactional. And it's, it's sort of quaint to say that when the Internet first came along, you know, people were trying to sell advertising and keep people glued to their screens it's not that anymore no. it's data the scariest thing about this whole recommendation engine algorithms you know if you did this you're probably going to like that it's all based on past behavior right so we're yeah. kind of blocking ourselves in without knowing it into we're, we're being channeled like cattle yes you know into certain behavioral expectations and uh, and when your primary relationship, which it is for anybody younger than us pretty much, is the phone, you mm-hmm. know, I mean, that is your primary relationship. A, a two-year-old knows how to swipe right. Absolutely. You know? I mean, it, it is in, I would say it's almost in our DNA at this point somehow. But when that's your primary relationship and you get exactly what you expect every time from that Good luck dealing with a human, yeah, because they're not going to give you that. So, so we're entering a phase of, um, uh, I mean, people call it AI or something, but mm-hmm. it's it's here already. It and and what how that gets manipulated uh, by people that aren't necessarily of good intention, yeah. which I would say are probably the manipulators. Um, we're we're in for a. a a bumpy ride I think for the next couple generations.
2: The so. one positive thing I have seen when I watch young people on their phones mm-hmm. and I watch them using the apps and doing mm-hmm. this and, mm-hmm. and having to sit down and explain to their moms and grandmoms what right. goes on I see how smart they are.
0: Mm-hmm. Right. They're
2: not doing it in the classrooms right. but hand them a phone a smartphone right. Right. and they can set this up they can right. set that up yep. Yeah, and I think absolutely. my where I am is just like, how do I help them channel that into something that's long-lasting yeah. for them? Yeah. How do I help them understand that? These mm-hmm. are the kids who are who are not going to be exposed to much of anything other than that little world that right. they live in. Right. But I watch them on those cell phones. And I watch the two-year-olds do it. And I'm right. thinking, if they yeah. can do it, right, right. Well, what and can that, we is teach it, them from that?
1: Exactly. And that speaks to the fact that right now we're sitting in an elementary school that's been repurposed. Right? Yes they all should be repurposed (laughs) because we are in a, a sea change in how kids uh, should be educated, which again, will go back 500 years, thousand years, a few hundred years. We, you know, our education system was all about assimilation, learn a language, be quiet, get in a line, respond to a bell. That's what education was about. And that's not what education is. And if, if we are used to, and we are, growing up in some sort of clan system, where or tribal or whatever, and I mean that in the good sense of the word, where a child has the ability to learn from aunts and uncles and cousins and, and doing things with people and watching by hand. Um, you know, again, that sounds romantic, but the the point is, even if it's with a phone and with a computer, if you're with people, solving problems and interacting, we don't need to memorize right. and spit out facts and figures anymore. It's It's got to be a different kind of education system.
2: I agree. And I, I want the internet not to be the separating device that it is mm-hmm. when they are, are texting rather than talking.
1: Right, And that's exactly. a big
2: piece of what the way we solve problems is talking and, right. and being around each other. Yep. If there was some way that integrated into all of their finger punching, right. there was some decent talking and some right. decent conversations happening among our young people, yeah. I'd be satisfied with yeah. it. I have mm-hmm. a question for you, and I, I have to ask this. You did a piece called The Revolution Will Not Be Funded. Yes. And so, uh, <laughs> reference, I know, I think I know where you got that from. Where did you the get it from?
1: The Revolution Will Not I'm Be Tell About it. 1971. yep absolutely I yep. yep, yep, loved him. Yep, okay. yep.
2: And so, when you use that well, you actually, I know you must have been intentional about it. Where, where were you going with that? And as it related to what Gil Scott Heron said, which was, right. you people are not going to be ready when right. this revolution happens. Yes. Talk exactly. to me about that.
1: Well, and, and and you're bringing up a piece that I wrote that I wish I could now recall, <laughs> and, but but you got the core of it, which is to say it's happening already. And that's what I don't think people are seeing because we, you know, the the media just wants people to stay glued. And they're gonna Mm -hmm. go for the base of the brain. They're gonna go for fear and anger. Yes. So fake or real, the media is not our friend because it's not working for us, it's working for advertisers. Mm -hmm. And so we're not gonna get the information that actually does give us some hope and some solidarity and some feeling like, oh, they're doing that in Detroit and they're doing that in Baltimore and they're doing that in Jackson and they're doing that in Durham. And, and by the way, in Columbus, Ohio, there's a, a repurposed school that's doing some great work as well. And so you start to see people doing things in seeming isolation. And that's where that whole networked bioregion thing comes yeah, in. Okay. Is that people will start to network and go, hey, we're doing that too. And here it works this way. But I can see your community is a little different. But this part of it might work. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. people are recognizing the uniqueness of where they are, and yet the commonality of the yeah. issues, and starting to connect them together, and you know, funding can help, but people are going to do it anyway. Yeah. You know, and yeah. and so that's really what I mean by that, and and I think it does tie in to what Gil Scott Heron was saying in the sense that it's it's you're not going to be ready for it because it's actually already happening.
2: On or off the record, I have to know Peter from all the people that you talk to. And, and it feels like your dad gets it. Do they really understand that when you talk about pulling yourselves up from your bootstraps, I'm talking about people that don't have shoes. I've been doing my work, like I said, from the empowerment behind the empowerment table mm-hmm. since 2002, but I've been doing this work. I grew up with my grandmother and, and auntie, and they did this work in our community. Yeah. But it wasn't until United Way came in and said, look, we need to look at this thing differently. 85% of the people that we are working with are minorities or people of color, mm-hmm. and the leaders are less than 85, or 20%. Right. Yeah. So yeah. I became a part of the ten to Watch program, which right. are nonprofits in this work headed by women or minorities. Right. I'm only at the table, Peter, because of that. Right. I would still be in Chapel Hill, right. North Carolina, right. struggling, Right. and the struggle doesn't change, but Where do we get, when they're not Peter Buffett's, where do I go and say, let me me tell you about this, let me share this with you, here's the real disparity, and it's not that people don't want to do for themselves, it's not Uh, that they don't want to pull themselves up, they don't have the opportunity. Right,
1: yeah, and the structures are completely moved against them, yeah, yeah.
2: And then I don't have time to teach them that it's the system that's against it. I'm not fighting against you. Right. It's not black-white.
1: Right. No, exactly. It's a system. Yep. yep. And that's yep. not easy yep. to understand. Yep. We are so adamant about people who look like the people that we're trying to support yes. are in the yeah. place. So whether it's a yeah, yeah. teacher, whether it's... Right? And so you have to have that connection mm-hmm. of oh I can relate because that's somebody that looks like me. Yeah. Well I'm kind of doing the same thing in reverse. And so I'm sitting down with a bunch of white people mostly and and they think because my father's this wealthy person that I'm gonna think like they do. And so I get in there and and point out these structures and systems and all the things they benefited from that are invisible. Mm-hmm. And it's not pointing fingers, it's not saying it's your fault. Right. It's not there's no malice it's just saying, look at the structures, and look how And do you change embedded. their minds? Some of them, I, I think I do. I think I do. I will say the only real uh, indicator, big indicator that I've had is this op-ed that I wrote in 2013. You know, at the end of that op-ed is probably the sentence I'm most proud of, and that is that progress isn't Wi-Fi on every street corner. It's when no 13-year-old girl gets sold for sex. Uh-huh and just the idea of what is progress and what are we spending our money on and investing in. And so yes, and, and that op-ed went through the roof. So that gave me hope. I think convenience is the opiate of our yeah. culture. Like if yeah. it's easy, we can go to sleep. And mm-hmm. there's too many people that are just asleep inside the system because they get to put food on the table yeah. and they're just fine. And. we got to fix it. Yeah, we have to fix it, and we have to all do our part, whatever it is, and you're doing yours and I'm doing mine, and uh, maybe it'll happen in our lifetime, but...
2: Well, we at least ought to start planting those seeds. Yes, exactly. Because the crop needs to grow in the next hundred years. Peter, thank you for spending this time with me. It has been a joy just hearing your side of it and hearing um, your thoughts about the same struggle that we're going through. And I absolutely agree with you that we've got to do it together. There's no other way we can make it happen.
1: Yep. Well, thank you, first of all. And, and leading by example, being in the same room and talking about things and finding common ground just about in 30 seconds
0: is, <laughs> is, is
1: what we hope everybody can do. Yeah. That. Yeah. that would be great. So absolutely. thank you.
0: Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Nonprofit Experience. If you like what you hear, please support our work. Rate us on iTunes, share us with a friend, and donate to the project at go.ncsu.edu forward slash give to PJ. t is a project of the Philanthropy Journal. Our managing editor is Sandy Sear. Our graduate editor is Kristen Goliheu. And our graduate assistant editor is Preston Whitworth. This episode was produced by Amarachi and Acarone. Amarachi is the host and executive producer of the Fragmented Whole podcast. To learn more, visit Amarachia.com. That's A M A R A C H I A.com. Our theme music is an original score by David Mueller. For more information on this and other episodes, visit us at www.philanthropyjournal.org. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at The Nonprofit Experience and subscribe to the show via iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Play.